Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses, also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on uh, the Russian military as well as unmanned systems. Uh, and he also has uh, a unique distinction of being somebody on our program who was recently sanctioned by the Russian government uh, in the tit for tat after the G7 imposed uh, some 200 new sanctions. Uh, Moscow retaliated and put Sam, the CNA team, and many others on their sanctions list, I think, including the International Criminal Court, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Sam, congratulations and welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much, Vargo. I guess I made it. Uh, you you did. You did make it. So uh, functionally, what does this mean for your ability to do your job and how are you and the whole CNA team taking the news? Well, likely it's not going to affect it too much. The main uh, condition for the sanctions is a refusal to entry into Russia. Um, it is unlikely we were planning a, a trip anytime soon considering the war and everything that's going on in Russia proper. Again, it doesn't necessarily impact what we're doing, um, but um, this is my first time on the sanctions list of this caliber, and I guess it remains to be seen what the consequences are. But the list is 500 people. A lot of the people there have a very, very cursory relationship to Russia proper. Um, half of the executives uh, from my company who are on the list really have nothing to do with Russia proper as far as work. And uh, there's lots of other people on the list who, again, do not normally um, relate to Russia or work on Russian issues you know, in their regular jobs, like many comedians who are amongst those 500 people. So I guess um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But uh, it's my first time to be on the sanctions list of this caliber. So here I am. Um, speaking of the Russians, uh, it looked like Bakhmut, uh, that the Ukrainians were making gains in Bakhmut. Uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, the Wagner uh, mercenary and penal group owner, uh, announced, you know, we've we've taken it and then Russian media has been running with it and, uh, you know, screaming mission accomplished. Uh, obviously, uh, Bakhmut is was strategically important to unlock uh, all sorts of avenues in Donbass, as, as we've discussed. The Ukrainians, uh, including Zelensky, are saying, I mean, we're still hanging on to Bakhmut, so I don't know what these guys are talking about. What's the reality on the ground as far as we know it? Uh, on what the state of play is, because the well, Russians we, have expended vast resources to try to take Bakhmut. The city has been leveled and the Ukrainians have taken some steep casualties as well. Right. We've been talking about Bakhmut for months and we've been talking about it as one of Russia's decisive battles where uh, the Russian military, the Wagner PMC and other forces have dedicated enormous resources. Russia needs Bakhmut as a victory. Russia needs to declare it has done something to justify the horrendous cost it has paid for the for basically capturing most of the city. On the ground, the situation is still very fluid. Uh, it is likely that uh, Wagner and its allies have captured most of the city, but they haven't necessarily been able to crush the Ukrainian resistance. Um, there are conflicting reports, obviously. The Russians are saying that the Ukrainians have retreated and the city is theirs. They're publishing maps where all of Bakhmut is red uh, under control of the Russian military and Wagner. Ukrainians are saying that they're still active along the flanks. And so this is, once again, this is optics for the Russians. 
and it is PR. And again, Russians need this. They desperately need this. And Wagner desperately needs this. For all the uh, blood and treasure expended by Prigozhin for his effort, he needs to say that he, ha he has been able to accomplish something. And Bakhmut is definitely something. Unfortunately for the city and all the sides involved, there's been absolutely enormous human cost, and the city has practically been leveled to the ground. Uh, jumping forward, uh, however this war ends, the um, demining operations and clearly uh, um, and uh, getting rid of all the unexploded ordnance in eastern Ukraine and especially in Donbass is going to take many, many, many years. And so even if Russians do take Bakhmut, the cost is still going to be very high, not just the cost of holding it and capturing it, but obviously the cost of what happens next for the Russians. Absolutely stunning finding in his uh, address uh, to the G7 in uh, Hiroshima. Uh, uh, President Zelensky made uh, some comparisons to the uninhabited, uh, really the devastated nature uh, of uh, the city. Carl Bildt had a great uh, tweet uh, on that, what Russian victory uh, looks like. Um, Talk to us a little bit about the F-16s, right? I mean, one of the big uh, news items uh, is that Washington uh, has agreed to allow uh, allies that are F-16 operators to send their airplanes uh, to the Ukrainians. We have the British who've set up a training pipeline. Uh, the Ukrainians aren't just asking for F-16s because they think they're nice airplanes, but because it has an extraordinary radar and an ability to uh, identify and uh, pinpoint, uh, use its radar to target with pinpoint accuracy uh, across hundreds of miles, ground targets and air targets. From, from your standpoint, how does this change the dynamic of the war? Well, it places a very sophisticated weapon in the hands of the Ukrainians. The Ukrainian military and government have been asking the West for more sophisticated weapons to be even more effective against the Russians. It gives uh, Ukraine the ability to control the airspace and um, even dominate um, against Russians in some sectors of the front. But this is also a long-term project. So it's not like if Ukraine gets the aircraft tomorrow, they're going to be fighting the following day. There's a lot of training involved, there's maintenance, there's operations. And so um, this long-term project basically makes Ukrainian military one of the strongest and most sophisticated militaries in both Western and Eastern Europe and provides a very effective aerial counterbalance to the remaining Russian um, air forces still active in Ukraine. And how do you think the Russians respond to this, uh, Sam? Because each time the Russians say, uh, this is a line uh, and boy, you're going to really see us respond. And the response is always sometimes relatively muted, right? Is, a, is another missile barrage. How do the Russians respond to this, do you think? Well, you just alluded to the fact that Russian response is often unclear and sometimes hard to predict. It is likely that, that they're going to continue the missile barrages, the attacks by unmanned aerial vehicles. In fact, they're changing some of the tactics and uh, how they're using the UAVs to really um, distract and identify Ukrainian air defenses and some of the gaps in those air defenses. It isn't likely that the Russians are going to try something drastically new. They're probably going to fall back to their previous MO. Uh, their attacks may become more frequent and more determined. But again, it's difficult to right now say that uh, Russians are going to try something new. And you said uh, new UAV uh, tactics. Obviously, this is a UAV war. Uh, the Shahed, the uh, Iranian weapons are proving or uh, something the Russians are throwing at, at quantity. We're going into a barrage, counter barrage, uh, right. I mean, the Western news media has said this is very expensive uh, attacks that Russia is conducting without causing a lot of damage on Kiev. On the other hand, 
the Ukrainians are also expending a lot of munitions to defend themselves against these attacks, right? Talk to us about this long-range missile barrage at this point and how the character of it is different, because in the last week we've spoken, there have been several massed attacks the Russians have launched against the Ukrainian capital. Well, that's really key, and it's forcing the Ukrainians to expand their ammunition and dedicate resources to shooting down these missiles and UAVs um, instead of uh, dedicating resources elsewhere. Uh, what's important here is the fact that, uh, again, and we talked about this for months, not a single one of the missiles or UAVs can pass through because even if the damage is minor, it's still going to cause some significant long-term effects, um, especially when Russians target Ukrainian energy and civilian infrastructure. Some of these missile strikes can be quite effective by essentially forcing Ukraine to dedicate the resources to such air defense. Uh, Russians are learning how Ukraine conducts its air defense. They're learning how Ukrainian layered air defense is operating and why it's so successful against some of the Russian strikes. Uh, Russians are showing signs of uh, adaptability and um, flexibility in how they are flying their Shaheds. Uh, this also indicates that um, Russians aren't necessarily running out of certain stocks anytime soon. Even if the flow of these attacks subsides uh, for some time, um, after a while, Russia strikes Ukraine with more missiles and more uh, Shaheds. So it is dedicating resources to building and assembling these weapons of war to use against Ukraine. And um, despite the fact that Russia has been at it for months, uh, there isn't necessarily a sign of extreme exhaustion on the Russian side. There's still going to be missiles flying at the Ukraine. There's still going to be UAVs flying against Ukrainian targets. The question is, uh, how long-term is such an investment and whether or not Russians are gonna try something new, use different weapons, tactics, and, sy and systems as this war drags into the summer and quite possibly into the fall. Um, you uh, mentioned uh, UAVs each week in this war uh, and how the Russians would use UAVs, uh, their UAV force uh, differently. Uh, each side is uh, using, adapting, uh, and developing uh, new capabilities on a rolling basis. What's the latest in the last week? Well, one of the biggest concerns from the Russian volunteer community, from the military, was the absence of uh, Russian-made drones and quadcopters and FPV-type drones in the war. Almost all of these uh, UAVs are actually Chinese-made. They're made by DJI or assembled from Chinese components. And so there was a lot of consternation and a lot of, a lot of anger, actually, uh, from uh, many volunteers and um, Telegram-based commentators against the Russian um, defense industrial complex, that one of the biggest defense industrial complexes in the world is unable to put the weight behind manufacturing light, cheap, plentiful UAVs. Uh, that has changed. And uh, one of Russia's main defense enterprises, Almazante, recently announced that it is going to launch mass production of small uh, DJI-style uh, quadcopters. Uh, they called it Dabrinya, after one of the uh, Russian heroes from the folktales. And this particular quadcopter is supposed to start phasing out Chinese-made UAVs. Uh, Alazante claimed that they're going to start manufacturing up to 3,000 of these a month in July and going forward. And uh, that's, again, as far as numbers go, that's probably going to be effective. But um, it isn't likely that this Russian drone is going to replace Chinese quadcopters anytime soon because Chinese quadcopters quadcopters are basically the best type of weapon, tactical weapon that both sides actually use because it, it is 
um, an absolutely perfect commercial uh, technology as far as quadcopters go. Uh, Russian defense industry claims that uh, it is going to um, manufacture quadcopters that are just as good and in uh, large enough numbers. Uh, but it's not likely that the Russian soldiers are going to be switching to the Russian um, quadcopters unless they're actually made to do so. Uh, but there's a lot of um, promotional videos. There's a lot of articles. Uh, there's a lot of chess beating from the Russian defense industry that, yes, they can also manufacture small, light and cheap quadcopters. And of course, uh, a lot of the volunteers, a lot of the, a lot of the people who uh, were in it in the very beginning, supplying soldiers and forces with uh Commercial drones are basically saying, "Okay, let's wait and see, and uh, let's wait and see how this actually develops." One question uh, that comes to mind, uh, and there's been a little bit of reporting on this, including uh, by uh, I think it was the New York Times uh, that said that Prigozhin is actually not getting that, that he's that he's trying to get credit uh, for what happened in Bakhmut. Could it be his temper tantrum that's causing this? Even though, as we record this program, we we have no idea whether or not the Russians have actually taken Bakhmut. Uh, or, or not, given the fluidity uh, of the situation and what even claims having taken it at this point. But um, what, what's your sense on why, if it is true, or even if it's not true, why Prigozhin isn't really getting a lot of credit, which I think is a little hilarious, actually. Well, there's a lot of bad blood, obviously, between Prigozhin and the MOD. He's been openly critical. He's been very offensive to the MOD. He called them names. He embarrassed them. And so why would a military that's been embarrassed and, and basically uh, thrown a lot of dirt on by Prigozhin give him credit? Uh, so this is kind of personal now. And of course, it is the Russian military that is fighting in Ukraine. It is the military that's going to take credit. Private military companies are uh, outlawed in Russia officially. So technically, Wagner really does not exist as a Russian entity. It exists as an entity fighting uh, in other parts of the world, especially Africa. But uh, again, um, Prigozhin has been less than kind to Shoigu, to Gerasimov, and to the MOD leadership. So it's not surprising that they don't want to give him credit for this absolutely horrendous uh, so-called victory. Sam, always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Thanks so very much. Congratulations again uh, on being sanctioned uh, by such a notorious uh, government uh, as a badge of honor. Clearly, you're doing a great job. Thank you, Vago. And a word from our sponsors, Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, and Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now, as he does every week, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners. Uh, this time joining us from Kyoto, Byron, good evening, and thanks so very much. Uh, for joining us. And I don't have uh, the greeting properly in uh, Japanese, aside from saying welcome aboard. That's fine, Bago. And good morning from my part of the world. Indeed. Byron, obviously, uh, debt is a number one consideration. We spoke uh, last week about a possible default and its implications, and that was the focus of my conversation last week uh, with Pentagon Comptroller Mike McCord. Uh, President Biden is cutting short uh, his G7 visit, returning to Washington, and on Monday is going to be meeting with Kevin uh, McCarthy. Uh, walk us through a little bit, right? We heard on Sunday's show uh, from uh, Ron Epstein that uh, the market is now looking at this as there is not going to be a default because both sides have sort of said they don't want to go there. Ultimately, where are we? What are the implications? Because you've been looking at the last time we went through this 
uh, drama and have analyzed um, budget authority between 11 and 16 and what tells what what it tells us kind of walk us through well a couple of things Vago. first i've never really felt that there'd be a default um I, you know i think there'll be there'll be a kick the can that'll probably happen i mean as much as the two sides are talking you know both still have pretty hard red lines and it's just very hard for me to see how these are reconciled um, in the amount of time that's needed with with either side bringing, you know, the majority of its party to agree to a deal that either slashes non-defense spending and increases defense spending and, and attacks uh, the other array of, of policy issues that, um, you know, I think as Michael Hershen mentioned on Friday, the work requirement rules, you know, they, they just don't seem to get at the deficit. So why are they really part of this whole discussion? Um, you know, intact. Well, it's, it's because it's a vehicle through which to fight an ideological battle, right? I mean, so some exactly. of these. 100%. So, so that's, but that's the point about, you know, if, if your concern is, is federal debt, then that should be the focus and you should really have all tools on the table <clears throat> to attack it. But you've, you've, and in, in the same breath, you know, the administration looking for to basically preserve non-defense uh, spending, you know, particularly some of the elements that were in the um, the Inflation Reduction Act, and it, it's not quite clear, Vago, on the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Uh, I know the way CBO scores this, that's considered emergency funding. Now that could still fall on the table, you know, in a deal, but those are two really hard fought battles, <clears throat> and the Chips Act would be the third one that, you know, when you start talking about non-defense discretionary cuts it's hard to see how those are impacted so i still i'm still of the mind that i i wouldn't be surprised if we breach the x date for a couple of days and then we'll see a temporary suspension of the debt ceiling and that this drama won't be over um i, I don't think it'll be over as, as quickly as people assume it will be that we're going to get a nice neat little deal uh, that's going to readily pass Congress. And, um, you know, I, I think this is this is an act, this is going to be a play that's going to be played out in multiple acts. The last time uh, we ended up in this, our mutual friend Todd Harrison sort of nailed it on the head uh, when he said, look, I mean, the val the, a hostage is valuable only if everybody values the, uh, the hostage's life. When nobody values the hostage's life, you're in deep trouble, which is exactly what happened uh, to defense spending last time. So we may not go over a fiscal cliff, and this is an issue uh, that I uh, asked uh, Michael Hurston on, on uh, Friday's show, and we talked a little bit about it on uh, the business roundtable. Okay, so you, the car doesn't go off the fiscal cliff, but you still suffer a gunshot wound, right? So right. how could this play out, and what does the last time we went through this, right? Nobody... Went yeah, yeah. into this wanting a budget control act, but we ended up with a budget control act that damaged defense. Where, where do right. we end up? Because folks are now talking about, you know, sort of a continuing resolution through the end of 24, which doesn't help anybody. No, of course. And and but ironically, that might that might be one of the better outcomes, particularly if it's a continuing resolution with a lot of anomalies. You know, to the point you raised in my Sunday night note that goes out, I looked at the evolution of the 050 uh, budget authority accounts um, from FY11 through FY16, 
And you can really see, you know, what the Budget Control Act did to Pentagon plans. Um, and, and it really starts to show up. It was the FY13 budget that that really first had a substantial impact. So if I look at FY14, you know, the FY11 plan showed $679 billion. The FY12 plan showed $669 billion. And then the FY13 plan showed $566 billion. So that's a that's a pretty good chunk of change. You know, and when you start talking about these cuts, you know, kind of just freezing spending at the FY24 level, you know, if I look at the way CBO scored this, um, the, the ba their baseline for uh, defense, and I know I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of all these different definitions of baseline and non-baseline and defense and, and DOD, but take my word, the FI24 number for defense, the way CBO looks at the world is 880, uh, $884 billion. That rises to $975 billion by, by FY28. And keep in mind, you know, these are current dollar numbers. They don't account for inflation. So anytime you talk about freezing this stuff, I'm sorry, it's a cut. Um, and it can be a pretty substantial cut. I have no idea yet, Fago. Um, and frankly, I'm not ready to speculate on what gets thrown on the table because I think you really first have to see if there's a deal um, that, that caps uh, spending levels. And then you have to start making the assumptions about, well, if if that's what the deal is, what does this right. mean for the Department of Defense? And, and I, I think, you know, we are in a, in a very different, geopolitical environment um, than we were back in 2011. Uh, having you know, said that, to your point, you know, some people honestly in, in Congress don't believe that you know, the defense is just part of, of government spending. All government spending is bad. Um, you know, it should be cut too, um, but be careful what you wish for. Uh, well, uh, exactly. Um... The last, I, I want to get to um, the performance of the group. Uh, yeah. You make the observation uh, that actually we saw, right? I mean, once we got through some of the craziness and after some of the dark times, we actually saw a surge uh, in uh, share prices for the group. What are some of the things, the nuanced uh, sort of lessons from the last time that could shape this time. And I have a follow-up to that because this time is different. There were a whole number of new, right? Eric Lipton had that piece in the New York Times uh, on Sunday talking about you know, new entrants into the field. And, and we've got the Palantirs of the world, the Anderals, and a number of other uh, companies that are, that are in the space this time that weren't last time. How, how, how should we see the performance of the group going out of and through what could be a very bumpy ride, as you said, a prolonged, uh, prolonged well, yeah. bumpy and, ride. You know, what's the old thing that past performance is not a guarantee of future results. So I would, I would definitely not say that, oh, this is the way these things behaved, um, you know, over a longer arc of time um, when looking at the last kind of, you know, debt crisis and what Congress did to try and solve that. And the chart that I use it indexes the stock prices of um, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, CACI, and the S&P 500. I could use other companies, but you know, you get a, a messy looking graph when you start adding more names. But the point was, was um, first off, you know, the market did have a swoon around the time that the S&P, uh, that Standard & Poor's Group downgraded US sovereign debt. And the whole market fell 
but so did defense. And that was kind of the aftermath of the last of the Budget Control Act battle. That swoon is really minuscule when you carry a, a chart out to 2020 to 2015. <clears throat> you know, some of these stocks were up, uh, you know, the index goes from 100 to 300, um, meaning there was a threefold increase in, in some of these stock prices. And so the way I'd read it, you know, share buybacks were kind of a factor, but not really. Um, <clears throat> you have to remember that it was really around 2014, 2013. China really started to emerge as a factor, but then the Russian seizure of Crimea and, um, and you know, their proxy war in, in the Donbass, I think was just the starting gun to this change in the geopolitical environment. To your point, you know, yes, we, and kind of just keying off of what I just said, we, we are in a very different geopolitical environment uh, today than we were in 2011, 2012, you know, 2013. But we're also in a different uh, industrial competitive environment. You know, it's not just the new tech startups <clears throat> that are that are chipping away at defense contractors. It's also the defense industries in countries like Korea, um, India, uh, Japan. Um, you know, the the increase in in European defense spending and how that's benefiting companies like Saab and Rheinmetall. So, <clears throat> to think that oh, the U.S. contractors are going to walk that same path going forward. They're just different factors we have to weigh. And I do think, you know, to the point of the multiple discussions you've had on this program, we're just in a different political environment in the United States that that makes it harder for this stuff to get done. Um, and, and there are going to be questions about U.S. geopolitical leadership. There are certainly going to be questions about what the, what happens in the 2024 election um, and whether you return an administration that's even more isolationist. Um, and less willing to to um, commit to global security requirements. And if that happens, you know, I, you could see a, a really a very different outlook for large U.S. defense contractors and some of the small ones, too. Uh, in, in, indeed. Uh, let me just ask you one quick question. I mean, we asked Sam uh, at the top of the show about how the U.S. decision to allow its allies and partners to send uh, F-16s uh, to Ukraine, how does that change the dynamic? And what are some of the interesting points, right? Richard cautioned on Sunday's show uh, that, look, some of these are going to be older jets. Sash had a terrific point. It's, it's, they're going to be disposable. Uh, they're going to serve a very important purpose over a short period of time. The Ukrainians are not looking at these as 20-year assets. Uh, rather, um, you know, the, the reason they want an F-16 is just a really good radar, uh, air-to-ground, air-to-air. What's, what's your sense on how this changes uh, the dynamic? Because the United States has said, that's a red line, we're not going to cross it, and we're crossing it. We're, we're crossing it. And I, I, would, I would kind of boomerang that back to the debt discussion, because it's been on my mind, too. You know, you can see the administration say, we're not going to do that, we're not going to do that, and then they do it. Um, what does that mean for things like, uh, you know, the 14th Amendment and the Constitution, for example? Now, to the F-16s, I don't think they're going to make a substantial difference. They're not going to tip the balance of power in the war. I mean, come on, you know, Russian air defenses are relatively intact. Um, you know, the U.S. doesn't send F-16s into air-to-air or, or uh, ground attack missions without a whole suite of um, surveillance, electronic warfare, you know, command and control 
um, networks to make sure that they can ingress and egress <clears throat> and perform their mission without getting shot down. So I, I don't see this as a big deal. And I would also commend people to yet another fascinating report that Royal United Services Institute published, I guess it was on Friday, on just kind of what they're seeing in kind of this Russian form of attritional warfare. And as much as people tend to put the Russians as all thumbs, you know, it's just the clumsy colossus that's failing and flailing. Um, I think that report is an excellent read about the tactics they've been using, um, that they've been learning from this war too. And I would not underestimate Russia's capacity. I also think there's been a per perennial <clears throat> um, Western bias to thinking that, oh, this one little piece of technology is a silver bullet that will solve the war. And um, it's it's not. So I, I get the symbolism with F-16s. It's an important symbol for Ukraine and another uh, threshold that's being crossed in the form of aid that's being provided to that country. But um, it's going to take a while, you know, it's, it's going to take a while. And I don't see these, these platforms as having a, uh, a decisive um, impact on the war. And uh, 30 or so seconds we've got left. What are the things the audience ought to be paying attention to this week? Uh, General Berger, the Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps, is speaking at Brookings uh, later today on Monday. Um, <clears throat> the House Foreign Affairs Committee is holding a May 24th hearing on modernizing U.S arms exports and a stronger AUKUS. That had been a, a hearing that it was rescheduled, I guess, from two or three weeks ago. There are a number of other think tank events. Uh, there's GeoInt, uh, which is a trade show symposium that takes place May 21st to 24th in St. Louis. I think it's going to be interesting to see some of the insights that come out of that from everything from AI, uh, you know, remote sensing, quantum, but just how this, this geointelligence market is changing because, um, you know, to me, the idea of hiding in plain sight becomes very difficult when you see the array of technologies that are being brought to bear. And it's certainly playing out in the Russian war, as we've seen. There's a, an IISS event on uh, May 22nd on Iran's nuclear program. And uh, German Marshall Fund is holding its Brussels Forum in Brussels, uh, not too surprisingly, on May 23rd, May, May 24th. It's going to deal with a lot of these broader NATO issues. Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Safe travels to you and yours, uh, and hope you guys have a terrific time in uh, Korea before returning back to the United States. Thanks so very much. We will, Bagram. Thank you.